Chapter 4, Part 1 of The English Language by Logan Pearsall Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Word making in English. It is not merely by borrowing from abroad or by discriminations between already existing words that our vocabulary is increased. New words can easily be created in English and are being created almost every day, and a large part of our speech is made up of terms we have formed for ourselves out of old and familiar material. One of the simplest ways of forming a new word is that of making compounds, the joining together of two or more separate terms to make a third. This method of making words was very commonly employed in Greek, but was rare in classical Latin, as it is rare in French. In German, it is extremely common, where almost any words can be joined together, and compounds are formed often of enormous length. In the facility of forming compounds, English stands between the French and German. The richness of Old English in this respect has been modified by French and Latin influence, and here, as in vocabulary, English is partly Teutonic and partly French. The most common of our English compounds are those in which two nouns are joined together, the second expressing a general meaning which is somehow modified or limited by the first. Thus, to take modern instances, a railway is a way formed by rails, a steamboat is a boat propelled by steam, a school board is a board which controls schools, a board school is one of the schools managed by that board. Words compounded in this way preserve for a while the sense of their separate existence. Soon, however, they come to be spelt with a hyphen like lawn, a hyphen tennis, or motor a hyphen car, and before long they are joined into one word like rainfall or goldfield. And sometimes we cease to think of them as compounds at all. The form of one or other of the words is forgotten and transformed as day's eye has become daisy and Christ's mass Christmas. But compounds can be formed by joining together almost any parts of speech and sometimes more than two words are combined in a compound, as in the old hop o' my thumb. And in the 19th century, rough and ready, hard and fast, daddy long legs. We have also in English a curious kind of compound verb, where an adverb is used with the verb without actual union as to give up, to break out, etc., in this kind of formation, the 19th century was especially rich and gave birth to many such modern expressions as to boil down, to go under, to hang on, to back down, to own up, to take over, to run across. Verbs of this kind, though often colloquial, add an idiomatic power to the language and enable it to express many fine distinctions of thought and meaning. On the whole, however, the formation of new compounds is not of enormous importance to modern English, and the language has certainly lost some of its original power in this respect. 
Compounds, moreover, tend to die out more quickly than other words. The genius of the language seems to prefer a simple term for a simple notion, and a word made up of two others, each of which vividly suggests a separate idea, is apt to seem awkward to us unless we can conveniently forget the original meanings. Word composition really belongs to an earlier stage of language, where the object of speech was to appeal to the imagination and feelings, rather than to the intellect. And we find perhaps the most vivid and idiomatic of English compounds in words of abuse and contempt, like lickspittle, skinflint, swillpot, spitfire. The excitement of passion heats more readily than anything else, the crucible of language in which it is fused, ready for coining the material for new words. And the abusive epithets of a language are always among its most picturesque and most imaginative words. For the poets also, who, like the vituperators, make their appeal to feeling and imagination, this method of making words is most valuable. And being allowed great freedom in this respect, they have by their beautiful and audacious compounds added some of the most exquisite and expressive phrases to the English language. Chaucer and the earlier poets hardly employed this method of coining epithets, but with the influence of the classical Renaissance and the translations from Homer and the Greek poets, whose works are so rich in compound epithets, this method of expression was largely adopted and has added to the language many compound adjectives which are little poems in themselves. Shakespeare's young-eyed cherubim, for instance, or Milton's grey-hooded even, or coral-paven floor. The commonest way of making new words is by what is called derivation. We are all familiar with this method by which a prefix or suffix is added to an already existing word, as coolness is formed by adding the suffix ness to cool, or in distrust, dis is prefixed to trust. Many of these affixes we know to have been originally separate words, as dom in freedom, kingdom, etc., represents the Anglo-Saxon dom, statute, jurisdiction, and hood in childhood, priesthood, etc., is derived from the Anglo-Saxon had, meaning person, quality, or rank. Our affixes, however, are no longer words by themselves, but carriers of general ideas which we add to words to modify their meaning. Thus, if we take the Old English word cloud, we find a verb formed from it to be cloud, adjectives in cloudy, clouding, clouded, an adverb in cloudily, a substantive in clouding, an abstract noun in cloudiness and a diminutive in cloudlet. Or if a word like critic is borrowed and finds a soil favourable to its development, it soon puts forth various parts of speech, an adjective critical, an adverb critically, substantives abstract and concrete in criticalness and criticism, and a verb in criticise which in its turn begets a noun and adjective in criticising, 
and another agent noun in criticizer. A full list of the affixes in English shall be found in any book of English philology or grammar, with their history and the rules, as far as there are definite rules for their correct usage. They can be divided into two classes, those of native and those of foreign origin. The most ancient of our derivative words, the small handful from the rich Anglo-Saxon vocabulary which has survived, are all, of course, formed from native affixes, and many of these affixes, ness, less, full, ly, y, etc., are still in living use. But when in the 13th century a large number of French words were borrowed, a great many of these brought with them their derivatives formed on French or Latin models. And as Mr. Bradley says, quote, When such pairs of words as derive and derivation, esteem and estimation, lord and laudation, condemn and condemnation have found their way into the English vocabulary, it is natural the suffixation should be recognised by English speeches as an allowable means of forming nouns of action out of verbs. End quote. In this way, a large part of the French machinery of derivation has been naturalised in English. We freely form other nouns in A-G-E, porterage, etc., in M-E-N-T, acknowledgement, amazement, atonement, in E-R-Y, bakery, brewery, etc. We form adjectives too in A-L, O-U-S, O-S-E, E-S-C, A-R-Y, A-B-L-E, etc. Verbs in F-Y, A-T-E, I-S-C and A-S-H. These French suffixes are for the most part derived from the Latin. A-R-D, however, in coward, etc., and E-S-Q-U-E in picturesque came into French from a German source. A-D-E in arcade balustrade crusade is from the Spanish or Italian, while I-S-M, I-Z-E, I-C and the feminine suffix E-double-S are ultimately derived through Latin from the Greek. It is often maintained by the purists of language that these borrowed affixes should only be used for foreign words, that for our own native words only our native machinery should be employed. Letters continually appear in the newspapers denouncing this or that new formation as a hybrid and begging all respectable people to help in casting it out from the language. There is no doubt a certain truth in the point of view and the linguistic sense of all of us will be rightly shocked by such an adjective as fishic or fishous for fishy, or such a noun as dampment for dampness. But a little examination of the linguistic usage will show that no such rule can be absolutely enforced. Latin borrowed Greek affixes, French borrowed them from German, and freely used them in forming new French words. Many of our noblest Old English words, as atonement, amazement, forbearance, fulfilment, goddess, etc., are formed by adding foreign suffixes to English words. 
while English suffixes have been freely added to foreign words, as in F-U-L, beautiful, grateful, graceful. And when we wish to form a noun out of a French or Latin adjective ending in O-U-S, we generally employ our native N-E-S-S for the purpose, as in consciousness, covetousness, etc. The foreign prefix R-E has been completely naturalised and used again and again with native words, and the modern anti and pro are added to English words with little consideration of their foreign birth, and one of our suffixes, I-C-A-L, is itself a hybrid, combined out of Greek and Latin elements. The established usage of the language, stated in general terms, seems to be that foreign affixes that have no equivalent in English are often thoroughly naturalised and used with English words. And that this too sometimes happens when the foreign affix is simpler and more convenient than our native one, as the Latin RE has replaced the old again, which we find in the old verb to again buy and other similar words. When also borrowed words have become thoroughly naturalised and popular, and they are then treated as if they were natives, cream, for instance, comes to us ultimately from the Greek. But it has been so long at home and seems so like an old English word that it would be insufferable pedantry to form an adjective like creamic from it. So the correct incertain, ingrateful, illimited, have been replaced by the hybrids uncertain, ungrateful, unlimited, and schema has taken the place of the older and more correct schemist. On the other hand, where words are obviously foreign in character, we can note a tendency which has been at work for the last two or three centuries to prefer what is called linguistic harmony to choose among two competing forms the one which is homogeneous throughout. Thus Wycliffe's words unsatiable, unglorious, undiscreet, the native un has been replaced by the Latin in. Unpossible is used in the Bible of 1611 but has been changed to impossible in later editions. While old hybrids like frailness, gayness, scepticalness, cruelness have given way to the more correct and generally more modern forms, frailty, gaiety, scepticism, cruelty. This change has been rightly claimed as an instance of the unconscious exercise of a linguistic instinct by the English people. It has not been brought about by the efforts of learned men, but by the choice of the people at large and is one of the manifestations of the genius of the language, which, in its capricious way, dislikes at times the incongruity in words composed of diverse elements. This tendency with the modern and more diffused study of language has grown stronger in the 19th century, and with the exception of Thoroughly naturalised affixes like AL, IZE, ISM, IST, etc., new hybrids, unless very convenient and expressive, find it hard to withstand the hostile and often furious abuse and opposition which awaits them. 
Since, however, such words abound in languages like late Latin and French, on which so much of English is modelled, and since many of our most beautiful old words are hybrids, and there was indeed no objection to them in the greatest periods of English, and our great poets and writers like Shakespeare and Milton have freely coined them, it is possible that a wider knowledge of the history of the language will modify this feeling, and they will in the future be judged not by abstract principles, but each one on its merits. Another curious thing about these affixes, due to the inscrutable working of the genius of the language, is the way in which some of them live and remain productive, while others, for some mysterious reason, fall into disuse and perish. TH, for instance, which was so freely employed to form nouns as in health, wealth, etc., is no longer employed, though growth was formed as late as the time of Shakespeare, and Horace Walpole's greenth, or Ruskin's ilth, could never have had the least chance of acceptance. So, too, the prefix for, corresponding to the still act of German fair, V-E-R, which we find in so many old words like forbid, forego, forgive, forlorn, is now, in spite of its great usefulness, quite obsolete. And if we take many of our oldest suffixes, such as dom, ship, sum, etc., we shall find, as we approach more modern times, that they are more and more falling into disuse. Old words can be, and often are, revived, but when an affix perishes, it seems as if no effort can restore it to its old life. Which, then, of these instruments of verbal machinery are still living? A collection of the most important 19th century coinages will show that out of our great wealth of native suffixes, but a few are still active and almost all our good old prefixes have fallen out of use. Why is still, of course, used, as in such modern words as plucky, prosy. We still form adverbs with ly as brilliantly, enjoyably, and adjectives in less or full or ish or ing as companionless and tactful and amateurish, exciting, appalling, etc. The most living of all our native suffixes is the old ness, for abstract nouns, boastfulness, blandness, absent-mindedness are all 19th century words, and ness has also been freely added to words of Latin origin as astuteness, saintliness. This suffix has almost entirely taken the place of ship, as gladness for gladship, cleanness for clean ship. And ship, which has given us such beautiful words in the past as friendship, worship, fellowship, is almost dead now, chairmanship being perhaps the only current word formed from it in the 19th century. Ness has also replaced head or hood in many words, and also dom. For the 19th century attempts to revive Dom, as in Carlyle's Dunstam, Dupedom, have not, with the exception of boredom, met with any permanent or popular success. The Latin suffixes in English show much more vitality. 
Probably the most common of them in 19th century formations is the use of the suffix al for forming adjectives or nouns. Preferential, exceptional, medieval are, with many others, 19th century words. Phenomenal is a hybrid of Greek and Latin, and the nouns betrothal and betrayal are compounds of Latin and English. Other adjectives are freely formed with O-U-S as malarious, hilarious, flirtatious, with I-B-E as competitive, introspective, less frequently with A-R-Y as documentary, rudimentary. Asian, A-T-I-O-N, and M-E-N-T are the commonest Latin suffixes for forming nouns as centralization, mystification, enactment, bewilderment. And there are many new nouns ending in ability, as conceivability, reliability, etc. The Latin prefix re is employed more than ever. Multi, which was not common until the middle of the 17th century, is much used now. Counter is also living. Intra has become popular. Pre and non are much used. And quite recently, pro as a prefix has sprung into sudden popularity, as in pro-Boer, pro-Russian, etc. There is no precedent or analogy in Latin for this use of pro, meaning in favour of. It seems to have arisen from the phrase pro and con. We find it first in pro-slavery, about 1825, but it was rare until about 1896. Since when, however, it has abounded in the newspapers as a useful antithesis to the popular anti. The French A-G-E, as in breakage, cleavage, acreage, and E-S-Q-U-E, derived through French from the Teutonic ISH and used in such words as Dantesque, Romanesque, are still living. But by far the most active of our affixes are Greek in origin. The suffixes IC, ISM, IST, ISTIC and IZE and CRAT and CRACY are fairly modern additions to the language and obviously suited to the 19th century with its development of abstract thought and its gigantic growth of theories, creeds, doctrines, systems. With them also to differentiate more nicely between various shades of thought we find principally in the 19th century a great use is also made of Greek prefixes like hyper, pseudo, archi, neo. Besides, a great number of prefixes used in more strictly scientific terms like dia, meta, proto, etc. Of all these, ism is the most productive. It came to us through the French, who had adopted it from the Latin and as early as 1300, a few words from the French like baptism make their appearance in English. By the 16th century, ism became a living element in our language, and since then it has rapidly grown in popularity, until in the 19th century more words were formed from it than from any other affix, and practically all the old English suffixes once used in its place have, with the exception of any double s, been swallowed up and superseded by it. It is now used not only in modern words of Greek origin like hypnotism and still more in Latin words like pauperism, conservatism, commercialism, 
but also for words from other sources as feudalism, Brahminism, etc. It is also true of agent nouns in IST, as in the 19th century scientist, opportunist, collectivist, of adjectives in IC, Byronic, idyllic, etc., and of verbs in IZD, as minimise, bowdlerise, and many others. The 17th century gave us one or two instances of curious hybrid verbs formed with the Latin prefix DE and the Greek suffix IZE, as decanonize, decardinalize. But since the period of the French Revolution gave birth to the verb demoralize, Words of this formation have become extremely popular in French and English, and our modern vocabulary abounds in verbs like dechristianize, decentralize, deodorize, demagnetize, etc. End of chapter 4, part 1